Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. But let us, um, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. In the, the mid-1990s and early 2000s, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye were, were pretty much household names. Not just among evangelicals, but pretty much in America and actually across the globe. Uh, they had written a wildly popular fiction series based on the end times called the Left Behind series. And it was an extraordinary phenomenon, not just in the church. I mean, Time Magazine ran cover stories on the Left Behind series and the stir it was causing. 60 Minutes covered it. I mean, it it was everywhere. It was inescapable. When most people hear the names Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, they, they think of, well, those famous authors who wrote those books. When I think of those names, I think of the people who paid for my seminary education. Uh, Not directly, they have no idea who I am. But my wife at the time was working for Tyndale House Publishing, right at kind of the peak uh, of the stir and, and the excitement caused by this series of books. It started off as seven books, then grew to 12 books, and ended up at 16 books, I think it was, in the series. And they were... Tyndale House Publishing was raking in the money and being very generous to their employees. They were giving out quarterly bonuses, which we used to pay tuition and buy books and put gas in our cars. So we were very grateful for the success of the Left Behind series. My wife received all of those books free because she worked for the the publishing company, and she got them all on audio tape as well so that we could listen to them from our drive from Chicago back to Pennsylvania, which it felt like we did virtually every weekend to visit family. Those were interesting conversations. You have to understand, my wife knew Tim LaHaye and Jerry, and she liked them. They they were nice guys, and still are nice guys as far as I know. They were helping us pay our bills. She was personally invested with them. And me, on the other hand, well, I was an arrogant seminary student. I don't know if there's any other kind. But 
I was well versed in critiquing and picking apart and criticizing and I, I was good at it and I liked it and probably got a little bit too much enjoyment out of it. And, and so those conversations would turn from just curious to sometimes intense. It's a euphemism for a good argument. You know, I think oftentimes when we think of eschatology, which is the fancy word we use for doctrines about the last things, that's what we think. Things that cause arguments and can get intense and heated. And it's true. They can. If we're filing the doctrine of eschatology somewhere, you might want to file it in that file labeled doctrines that divide. And I understand. I I get that. But if you're going to put it in that folder, you have to find a way to put it in the folder labeled Essential Truths of the Christian Faith as well. I mean, think about it for a minute. Every Communion Sunday, at the end of the service, Bob stands up and declares words that the church has declared for centuries. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. That's eschatology. Speaking of the hope that we have of of Christ's return. And every time we affirm together the Apostles' Creed, we affirm that Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father from whence He will come to judge the living and the dead. And we go on to affirm that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and, and life everlasting. Those are essential truths of the Christian faith. It's not just a doctrine that divides. It's essential and it is a doctrine when you focus on the core of it that should bring us together in hope. Yes, it's a doctrine that divides, but it's also an essential truth of the Christian faith. And if you're putting it in those two folders, you might as well figure out a way to put in a third folder called Very Practical Doctrines. What's so striking to me about First and Second Thessalonians, the books that we're going to be looking at this morning, is that Paul addresses this doctrine of eschatology, things about the last days, but he does it so very pastorally. He, he's addressing a real church with real needs, real concerns, real questions, and he addresses them from the standpoint of eschatology, what will happen in the last days. He focuses them on the hope of Christ's return and all that that encompasses. And he expects that that will do something in them. Uh, the books of First and Second Thessalonians are probably some of the first books that Paul wrote. It's possible that Galatians was written a little bit earlier... But either way, it's among the first books he wrote very early in his ministry, written to a very important church in the region of Macedonia. The most important city was Thessalonica. And this church was a a fledgling church that Paul had not had the opportunity to spend much time with. We know that Paul spent more than a year in Corinth, an extended time in Ephesus, But he was probably only in Thessalonica for about a month and started a church. So this church had lots of questions about Christian living and about doctrine. And it's incredibly interesting that in the letter to this, again, fledgling church, 
Paul's focus is so much on what is going to happen when Christ returns. He doesn't treat it as something that's curious, but something that they absolutely need to know and something that will change how they live. Uh, the book of first and second, the books of first and second Thessalonians just throb with this eschatological hope, th- this hope of what's going to happen at the end. Christ's return is mentioned in every chapter, all eight of them, of these two books. There's this just glorious expectation of what's going to happen. And it's an expectation that Paul hopes is going to accomplish. It's going to do four things in the church. There's four main sections of writing in these two books regarding Christ's return. It begins in 1 Thessalonians 4. There's another section in chapter 5. Another one in 2 Thessalonians 1. And another in 2 Thessalonians 2. Each time Paul addresses this doctrine regarding Christ's return, he does it to accomplish something in the church. Four things, four sections. The first, Paul hopes that the return of Christ will give comfort to the grieving. He hopes it will give comfort to the grieving. Uh, It seems like the church at Thessalonica was struggling with some serious misunderstandings of Paul's theology and what he had taught, which again is very understandable given the brevity of Paul's stay there. He'd only been there three Sabbaths, maybe four weeks, maybe a little longer, but he left quickly. So there's all kinds of questions, all kinds of misunderstandings, and it looks like the church at Thessalonica believed that Christ was going to come back in their lifetime. Again, that's easy to understand. When you hear Paul, when you hear Jesus teach, the expectancy was that it could happen at any moment. It's easy to understand how that could be misunderstood as it's going to happen before any of you pass away. But Paul writes to them and wants to clarify the situation. They were wondering now because some of them had passed away, had died, and they were wondering, well, what about those that have died? Will they be at some kind of disadvantage? Do they now have no hope? Are they lost? And Paul writes to address that concern. And he does it with with good theology. Uh, This week I I found this incredibly relevant Peanuts cartoon. Um, Can't go wrong with Charles Schultz, right? So Lucy, I don't know if you can read that. Lucy's in the window and you can see the rain coming down. And she says, boy, look at it rain. What if, what if it floods the whole world? And I think that's Linus, right? Or is that Schroeder? Linus? Okay. It will never do that, he says. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And he replies, sound theology has a way of doing that. And that's what Paul is doing here in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's giving them ease and comfort. You need to take that down because no one's going to pay any attention to what I'm saying if Peanuts is still up there. Uh, He's giving them comfort based on sound theology. 
And he starts in verse 13. He says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He's saying those who have fallen asleep, which is a wonderful euphemism for death, they're at no disadvantage. A matter of fact, he's going to go on to say that they will rise and they will meet Christ in the air even before those of us who are living. In the remaining part of that section, he outlines four stages of Christ's return. First, there is return, then resurrection, then rapture, then reunion. Listen to how he describes it in verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. He focuses first on the return of Christ. And this is the very public event. It's a It's a spectacle. There is a loud voice, a command, and a trumpet heralding Christ's return. Can you let me get a little bit word nerdy here for a second? Uh, The word Paul uses is parousia, which was kind of a technical word used to describe the coming of a god or the visit of a king. I think Paul uses that word very intentionally because Christ the king is returning. When he was in the church in Thessalonica, he had said to them, you know Caesar and he's king. But I'm telling you, there's another king named Jesus. That proclamation caused a riot in the city. And now here he is saying, this king, he's going to come again. In triumph. This is very unlike his first humble coming. That was unannounced except to a few shepherds in a field and a few wise men who were able to look at the stars and figure it out. This is the public heralding in triumph of Christ the King's return. And Paul says, when that happens, the dead in Christ will rise. There's this parallel. Christ died, Christ rose. Those who were in Christ and are dead, they will rise to and meet him in the air and then rapture those of us who are still alive will be caught up to meet christ in the clouds and then reunion and will live with christ forever and ever now i'm going to plead with you here for a minute don't give in to the urge that you're all feeling right now to try and piece this together into a timeline that you have in your mind or a chart don't just let it impact you as Paul intended it to and give hope and comfort. He wrote this to believers who were grieving. And he says, I don't want you to grieve as the rest do, as the pagans do, who have no hope. He doesn't say, I I don't want you to grieve at all. Grief is natural. Grief is normal. I would even say grief is good. When a loved one has has departed, has has passed away, yes, of course, we feel that loss and, and we grieve.
but not as those who have no hope. Uh, The Greek, quote-unquote, hope was very vague. It was was very nebulous. Uh, Maybe, maybe after death you would exist on as a shade in Hades. Maybe. Or maybe there was a, a better, more blissful existence after death. Maybe. Don't know. Nothing to ground it in. Just a kind of a hope-so kind of hope. But Paul is saying uh, the Christian hope is categorically different. It's a hope not only based on what we know Christ is going to come and do, but what Christ has already done. He already died and was raised from the dead. And shows us that resurrection is our, well, hope. Our hope in Him. Christians, we can receive and experience great comfort in the truth that those who have departed in Christ, those who have died in Christ, are now with Him. But Paul pushes past that hope to our more ultimate hope. It's not just that we go to heaven when we die that Paul is speaking of. That's true, that's fantastic, but Paul pushes beyond that to something more ultimate and frankly more fantastic. The hope that one day we will experience resurrection in the body and experience eternal life with Christ in our new resurrected bodies, in the new heavens, in the new earth. It's not to steal a phrase from N.T. Wright. It's not life after death that Paul is speaking of here. It's life after life after death. It's resurrection. That's our ultimate hope. And Paul is saying, those who have died in Christ, they're not lost. They're at no disadvantage because they will be raised in the last day when Christ returns. That's why sleep is such a good, again, euphemism for death. It's a euphemism that cultures across the globe use. But it's so appropriate for Christians. Because it's not an eternal sleep. It's a sleep that will one day end when they awaken and are resurrected in Christ. Paul says, as you grieve, don't be uninformed about the hope you have. Think back to what I taught you. Know what Jesus said. In your grief, be informed and let that grief be be tempered by your hope. Let what you know of Christ and His return and the hope of glory comfort you in the midst of your grief. And he says, encourage one another with these words. You've got this comfort. Now extend that comfort to those who are grieving. Take what I've said, take it to heart, and use this truth for your comfort and the comfort of others. Paul intended this doctrine of Christ's return to comfort those who grieve. But he also intended it to promote holiness in those who are still alive. In the next chapter, second, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul turns from talking about those who have died in Christ to those who are still living in Christ. And just as clear theology would comfort those who were experiencing grief, so clear thinking about the end would help those who are still alive live as true Christians 
in the present. Paul says, and this is the passage that, that Larry read for us, First uh, Thessalonians 5. Uh, the church, at, the Christians in Thessalonica, they wanted a date. And they were asking Paul, okay, tell us when. When is this going to happen so that we can be ready? And Paul says, no, that approach is all wrong. You're pulling a Dan. What do I mean by that? My wife travels a, a good bit for work, and it works fine because I know when she's coming back. I know exactly when she's coming back. And I can calculate, okay, it takes her about a half hour to get her baggage, about an hour to drive. And so I get the time when she's going to pull in the driveway. And then I can work back two, maybe three hours, and that's when I have to start cleaning. Because if my wife ever comes back early, you're going to find my body in a shallow, unmarked grave in the backyard. (laughs) We have very different styles of keeping house. She keeps it, I don't. and I spend the last couple hours frantically doing the dishes, making the beds, vacuuming. Yeah, it's just a lot. And it works because I know the exact date. I don't keep the house clean the whole time. I don't even try. But I get it clean like that. That's what the church at Thessalonica wanted. Uh, when's Christ coming back? And we'll make sure we're ready then. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to give you the time, not even the season. You just need to be ready all the time. Constantly alert, constantly awake, vigilant, self-controlled, he says. He uses two metaphors. The thief who comes in the nights and labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. And with those two metaphors, he he conveys that Christ's return will will be sudden, unexpected, and unavoidable. So the Christian ought to be ready constantly for Christ's return. He says, regarding the thief in the night metaphor, he says, you're not in the dark, so it's going to catch you totally unaware. You're children of the light. That doesn't mean you're going to be able to tell when it's happening. It means you're children of the light, so you're going to be living as children of the light, so you're not going to be caught unaware. He has great confidence in the Christians at Thessalonica. That's a mouthful. You're not in the dark. You're children of the light. You'll be ready when Christ comes. Now stay awake. Be alert. Be sober. Be self-controlled. Don't fall asleep and just go along with where the culture's taking you. Don't give in to the temptations to indulge in sensual pleasures. Be self-controlled. Be alert. He's also very clear what he doesn't mean. When he says be alert, be awake, he doesn't mean quit your job, put on a white robe and go to a mountain retreat and wait. He's very clear. Keep working. Keep working. Be faithful in your vocation. And he actually says the one who doesn't work doesn't eat. So that's not the kind of awake and alertness he's talking about. He's talking about as you go through your day, your daily routine, be holy, live righteously, and you'll have nothing to worry about when Christ returns. Uh, One of my favorite theologians is Jonathan Edwards. He he gets a 
a rad bap. A bad rap. Kind of like Christian Leitner does. You just love to hate Jonathan Edwards because he spoke so much about wrath and things like that. But he was fantastic. He was serious. Maybe too serious. When he was 19, he wrote a series, I think it was of 91 resolutions that would kind of dictate how he lived his life. One of those resolutions was to think often about dying in his own death. Another one was to never do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That doesn't speak specifically to Christ's return, but we can morph it a little bit. Never do anything that you would be ashamed or fearful of doing were Christ to return this very hour. That's what Paul's saying. Be awake, be alert, be self-controlled. And he closes that section and says, and use this truth to encourage one another and build one another up. Not so much encourage one another in your grief, but encourage one another as you struggle for holiness, as you discipline yourselves towards righteousness. Encourage one another with the truth that Christ is returning. The return of Christ gives comfort to those who grieve and it promotes holiness. The return of Christ also calls for perseverance. Uh, The third main section of Paul's teaching regarding Christ's return comes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And it's very clear that the church at Thessalonica was struggling. They were were suffering under persecution. That really shouldn't come as as any surprise. Because, well, the city was a metropolitan city uh, with lots and lots of gods. Worshipping a god was no problem. Unless you claimed that he was the one and the true god. And you refused to worship the other gods. That was a part of just civic life, the worship of many gods, and especially the worship of the emperor. The imperial cult was incredibly important in the city. The worship of Caesar. Thessalonica had a long history of of worshiping kings, going at least back to Alexander, the Macedonian, Alexander the Great, who was deified. And, And then a progression of Roman emperors who are deified and worshipped and again paul comes into the city and he says no christ is king christ is lord not caesar don't render unto caesar your worship render unto the lord your worship and and immediately when he was preaching that riots broke out and paul had to leave the city under cover of darkness to get away and so it's no surprise that the church there was, was suffering under persecution. But Paul says, use the return of Christ to motivate you to persevere. To persevere. One commentator that I read this week said, suffering is the first part of the equation that God balances with glory on the other side. I liked chemistry in high school. It worked out so neat. There was, you know, this chemical, and then there was a reaction of some kind, and then you came out on this side of the equation, but it all balanced. 
And Paul's saying that's what's going to happen. There's suffering on this side of the equation, but you go through this process and Christ returns and it's all going to balance suffering on this side, glory on this side. It used to be hard for me to imagine what suffering for Christ would look like. I remember in, in high school reading Fox's Book of Martyrs and trying to put myself in, in that situation. And you had to really struggle and, and use your imagination. But not so much anymore, do you? You just have to turn on the nightly news and see Christians suffering for the name of Christ. And Paul reminds the church that suffering will not go on forever. Christ will, will vindicate his people just as he himself was vindicated. Christ suffered. Christ died. Christ was vindicated in his resurrection, but that wasn't the end of the road. He also ascended into glory. And Paul says, that's what's true of believers too. Yes, they suffer, but they will be vindicated in resurrection. And when Christ returns, they will also ascend in glory. He adds vivid detail in this chapter to Christ's return. In 1 Thessalonians, he talked about a loud voice and a command and a trumpet. Here he speaks of angels, mighty angels in flaming fire, symbols of God's holiness and wrath. He's not speaking, I don't think, of, of two separate returns, but of two aspects of Christ's return. In the first, he was speaking of resurrection and the hope and the glory that is the believers. And in this section, he's talking about God's wrath that will be poured out on those, well, who were causing the suffering. He says, when Christ returns, those who cause suffering will themselves suffer. And those who have suffered will be comforted and glorified. There's blessings to the righteous, but he says judgment and destruction on those who refuse to acknowledge God and obey the gospel. And the judgment is that they will be cut off from the presence of the Lord. But as saints, he says God will be glorified, Christ will be glorified, in his saints not just by his saints or through his saints but in his saints as we're transformed we will not only see the glory of god but we will share in that glory and so christ will be glorified in us so for us who turn on the nightly news and see christians suffering and People hiding behind masks who persecute. There's a very real chance, right? That the world might never bring them to justice. And that was a real chance that the Christians in Thessalonica had to confront too. We're suffering and in this life justice might never be done. But Paul says, persevere. Even through the suffering, knowing that when Christ comes the scales will be balanced the scales will be balanced justice will be done and everything will be set right so it calls for perseverance the return of christ also requires discernment the next big section comes in second thessalonians chapter 2 
And, and Paul says you need to be discerning with this doctrine of Christ's return. It, it actually requires two different kinds of discernment. Discernment regarding the times and the days and the seasons of Christ's return. And also discernment regarding deception. Uh, Listen to just a few verses from chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposing to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. First, Paul warns and he says, don't get carried off by for lack of a better word, fanatics, who were saying the day of the Lord has already come. Apparently someone was writing letters to the church there and agitating them with that false teaching. Christ has already already come. The day of the Lord's already happened. Your hope has been in vain. He says, don't be deceived. Be discerning. It's not going to happen until the man of lawlessness, he says, has been revealed. So be discerning. Don't get carried off by fanatics. But also, don't get deceived by false hype. Uh, The man of lawlessness is Paul's phrase, parallel to John's title, Antichrist. And Paul reminds us that Antichrist, that our adversary, is waging war against the church. Sometimes the war takes the form of outright persecution. But sometimes it's subversive. Sometimes it's a deceptive war. Paul says this this man of lawlessness sets himself up and takes seat in the temple which could mean a literal temple in Jerusalem, but I think probably more means the church. That's more consistent with how Paul uses the term temple. So he sets himself up in the church, and he draws people to him by his power and false signs, false miracles, and deception. We need to be incredibly discerning Uh, I do believe God can and does do miracles. Yes and amen. But it's not just the apostles and followers of Christ who do miracles. We need to be careful not to become infatuated with the grandiose, with claims of miracles and signs. Because the deceiver is capable as well. I'm not saying we need to discount every miracle that we hear reported. But we need to be discerning. I I get very concerned when we become obsessed 
with the miraculous. When we chase miracles all over the country, don't be infatuated, don't be deceived. Because our adversary, well, he's trying to deceive. And Paul says, there's this man of lawlessness, or John will say, there's this antichrist who is coming. But don't think it's just something out in the distance already among you. The spirit of lawlessness, or antichrists with a small a, are at work. They're waging war. A subversive, deceptive kind of war. So be discerning, church. It's Christ's return that will put an ultimate end to this war. Paul says that with the breath of his mouth, he will overthrow this rebellion. He will destroy the man of lawlessness. But until then, we need to be discerning. Paul's letters, especially 2 Thessalonians, I think, remind us of the kind of battle we're in. Uh, One of my absolute favorite movies, it's like the best movie of all in the history of all movies, uh, The Usual Suspects, Kevin Spacey movie. I think I might have used this quote a long time ago. In the movie, Kevin Spacey says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And in the church, we would never come out and say he doesn't exist. We kind of ignore it as a reality. And Paul's letters remind us that he's active and he's waging a spiritual war against the church. And when we know what kind of war we're in, we know what kind of weapons to bring to the fight. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You don't bring physical weapons to a spiritual war. Uh, The book of First and Second Thessalonians opens our eyes to the warfare that's going on around us. Uh, On the macro scale, you could look at politics and you could say, you know what, church, your struggle, as much as you think it might be against a party or an ideology, it's just, it's not. We're in a spiritual war. So don't think those things are going to tip the scale and win the war. They're, they're not. Bring it down to a micro scale. In our families, in our homes. Parents, you, you think your struggle is against peer pressure. Or, or against a, a culture that's kind of wooing your kids into complacency or immorality. Or against broken systems. And I guess on one level it is, but it's, it's not. It's a spiritual war. And we need to bring the spiritual weapon of prayer to bear. Prayer is the greatest weapon we have in our arsenal in this spiritual war. In prayer, we're changed. In prayer, God responds and God acts. The return of Christ reminds us, Paul's teachings regarding the return of Christ, reminds us the kind of battle we're in. It's a battle that requires discernment and perseverance. And on the positive side, the return of Christ also calls for holiness and gives us great comfort. You know, I think eschatology is kind of like a picture that has a vignette uh, filter on it. 
my camera takes pictures and my phone, and I can add a, a vignette filter. It makes it look really cool, a lot more artsy than I actually am. And it gets real kind of fuzzy on the edges. You can't, it's blurry out there. It adds a really neat effect. I think the doctrines regarding the last things is kind of like a vignette photograph. Around the edges, it can get blurry. It can get confusing. You don't quite know how to make it out. But when you focus on the center, Christ is going to return. The dead in Christ will rise again. We will meet Christ in the air and we will live with him forever. When you focus on the center, I'm not saying neglect the edges, don't ever talk. The edges are fun, right? But focus on the center. It is essential truth, not only for the church, but for Christian living. It addresses very real concerns that we all have, grief and holiness and, frankly, raising our kids right. Focus on the core and let the truth that Christ is returning grip you. Let it grip you. Don't let go of it because it's a doctrine that divides. Hold on tightly to it as something that is essential and brings great hope. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, well, honestly, you don't answer every question that we have. Instead, you give us what we need. And we need the hope of your return, your son's return. We need the hope of eternity. We need the hope that the work he did in conquering death will be to our great and eternal benefit. Father, we pray that that hope wouldn't be just something we carry around in our heads, but would transform our hearts and how we live. Father, help it to make us bold and unshakable. Help it to make us tough and resilient. We pray that it would also drive us to our knees in prayer. Father, help us to be awake, alert, and self-controlled as we wait for your glorious appearing. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.